Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but I had no idea where to go for answers. So with Running Explained, I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Dr. Carrie Pagliano, a dynamic leader in the area of women's and pelvic health for over 20 years. She has a master's and a doctorate of physical therapy and is double board certified clinical specialist in orthopedics and women's health. She teaches, she serves on boards, she speaks internationally, she is a true expert in her field. And when she's not kid wrangling or bringing pelvic health to the world, Carrie is an avid yogi, crossfitter, and of course, a runner. And now she is on my show. Carrie, I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. So I like to start with everybody's origin story, kind of give us an insight into how you became a runner and how you ended up as a physical therapist specializing in women's pelvic health. So tell us about yourself. Sure. So I have been running since, oh gosh, probably seventh grade. And it, I was very slow. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> I mean, my poor parents, bless their hearts, like they would come to cross country meets, they would come to track meets and they would be there the longest because they were waiting for me. Um, and they still encouraged me to keep going and I love doing it and really was completely clueless to the fact that I was super slow. And then I think it was like my last meet cross country meet in eighth grade. For some reason, I found another gear that I had, um, and really just, you know, was able to, to compete quite nicely with, with some great teams in high school. I went to do two different high schools and, um, really just had a blast with it, um, kind of backed off a little bit in college my freshman year because no one's forcing you to do it and then realizing it's good for you. <laughs> so um, so mostly just recreational running since then. Um, I joke that I've done two marathons, my first and my last. Technically, it was just one, but um, had hip FAI surgery a couple years after that one. Um, and then just navigating back after that and then having two kids and, and navigating that. Um but sports-wise, I'm sorry, PT-wise, um, I actually got into um, pelvic health pretty early. Like I graduated in 99. There were only six of us in my class out of 60 that had jobs like the bottom and sort of tanked out of the market with managed care. And so I, I really kind of just took a job where I could get it. And somebody offered me a job in DC doing pelvic health. And I didn't know what that was, but I had spent a year back home in upstate New York and I didn't want to be there anymore and um, started doing pelvic health and had a great mentor, um, Karen Liberi, who's in Michigan, and she's still a very good friend today and started doing some of that, but wasn't completely sold on it. And so went back, started doing orthopedics and pelvic health very separately. And so I was working with runners and athletes and that sort of thing in the sports sense, but not really in a pelvic health sense. And back then, you know, if you couldn't do something, you were having leakage or pressure or something, well, don't do it, which we all know now isn't necessarily the best way to go about it. Um, but one day we just really woke up and realized that pelvic health is just orthopedics in a warm, dark place. And so um, started to mash things up and realize that if the research isn't so great, then maybe we can just play around with what we do know about other things um, and start to pull it together. And for me, again, 
having two kids, two C-sections, things did not go the way that I planned. Having diastasis recti, which is the abdominal separation, some pelvic organ prolapse, some leakage, all things that, you know, if I was a great PT, I should have been able to prevent all those, right? Which, you know, you can't in a lot of cases. Um, Just trying to reconcile that being a professional, why am I having these issues? And the solutions that my profession was providing weren't sufficient. Um, so really it's, I've kind of come full circle now, however many years later, um, and just so many women, and we were kind of talking about this earlier, like you're not prepared for what's coming. And when this is your job, you're really not prepared for what's coming. So it's, it's been nice to go full circle and and get back to, um, really hyper-focusing on women who want to get back to running and workouts that that's very much who they are but to do it in a way that there's not these constant reminders that their body isn't fulfilling, you know, the expectations that you had for them. So that's great. And, uh, and I do know, so I, and I'll let our audience know, I do not have any children. Um, but I am in my early thirties and the majority of my friends and at the, a lot of the athletes that I work with, uh, have at least one kid. So this is of course, statistically a really important topic for us to know about. Let's, let's do a little bit of a softball. And I'll ask you about pelvic health. Like, what is it? Why is it important? And should I care even though I don't have children? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, So softball, yes. We all have pelvic floors. Check. That's the good news. Um, Pelvic floors are good for things like peeing and pooping. Also good for sex. All very important things. Um, The other thing that people don't realize is pelvic floor muscles are really important in stability. So if you move, it's important. If you um, breathe, it's important. The pelvic floor is actually an accessory breathing muscle. So it kind of shows up in all the things, which I really like about it. And then you hit all the systems, things that affect pelvic health can be your GI, it can be your, you know, urinary symptom systems, but also musculoskeletal, also nervous system. We, We just kind of hit all the things. So it really is this one sweet little place that you get to have a hand in everything and you don't have to just get stuck in, in one little corner. Um, so as far as like who we treat, it really is everybody from kids all the way up to elderly adults, both men, women. Um, we're also doing a lot of work with trans, um, with that population as well, post-surgically. Um, ironically, um, Part, part of my job, I, I just finished up as past president of the Academy of Pelvic Health PT. Um, we used to be the section on women's health. And that was actually one of the things that I worked on in my tenure was making um, the name of this association more inclusive because, you know, women have been fighting for so long to, to get a voice, right? And go figure, now we have to turn around and give a voice to men who have pelvic pain who are, they have to go to a gynecologist to find help. Irony of all ironies, you know? Um, so really it, there's so many ways in which it can show up. It can be continence issues. It can be pelvic pain. It can be pregnancy, postpartum related kids, bad wedding, um, endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, like so many different things. Um, and so I think in our field, like I, I, I teach my students um, at Marymount University, we talk about, I want all of you to be able to at least screen this stuff out, to be able to say the words incontinence, to be able to say the word sex. Do you have pain with sex? Do you have any leakage? Um, because I, I feel like if we can provide a safe space for people to at least start to discuss these symptoms, 
Um, if it's something basic, all of my orthopedic, you know, PT friends should be able to handle it. If it's something that's a little bit more complex, then um, that's when it's important to kind of bring a specialist in. And that's, that's where my role would be. Let's talk a little bit about, I know we, we do have some questions about fit pregnancy and postpartum yeah. issues, that kind of thing. But as because pelvic health is, you know, applicable to everybody who has a pelvis, um, what are, and, and this is a podcast about running, how is pelvic health important to your running, your ability to run well, and especially for those long distances, just talk about pelvic health and running. Yeah. So obviously running your foot's hitting the ground, right? And I think we think about it in musculoskeletal things as far as like hip and knee and foot and impact. Um, but every time your foot hits the ground, that impact translates up through the leg and the pelvic floor counters. Ideally, it's counting that pressure prior to that foot hitting the ground because your brain knows that this is going to keep happening over and over. And so the pelvic floor has to kind of maintain your pelvic contents and you know, depending on if, you know, if you have male or female parts, there's a bunch of stuff going on in there that it has to support. And so postpartum, the issues, um, people think, oh, well, it's the pelvic floor is weak or the, you know, maybe there's muscle damage or things along those lines. The things that actually come along with postpartum is, you know, that person has been pregnant for nine months, their center of gravity is different. Their um, balance is different. Their foot is even probably a little wider. So they're hitting things differently. Their, their, their foot strike is different. Um, their core is not as connected as, or as coordinated. Um, just so many things are different. And, you know, all the common things that we think about runners having weaker hips and, and, and so on, it's magnified postpartum. Um, everybody thinks, oh, you get strong while you're pregnant. Eh, you're, you're doing less and less. You're, you're, you're strong mentally. I, I will give you that all day long. But um, those weaknesses are magnified. And so when you have a system now that's starting to break down, um, that impact may not be abs absorbed as efficiently. Or, you know, just the basic things that we know about running, you know, how do you change impact? that gets magnified up. And so the symptoms might not be initially hip pain or knee pain, but the symptoms might be leakage or heaviness or pressure or things like that. And if they continue on with it, maybe they'll have the other musculoskeletal issues. But at the end of the day, it's the same sorts of things that you would have if you were just, you know, a non-pregnant or non-postpartum runner is you're dealing with impact management um, and progressive load and those sorts of things. So it's not that different in some ways um, from just regular, you know, return to running after injury, except for the fact that now you're, you're raising a small human, you have hormones all over the place. Um, your top is huge because you're breastfeeding. You're not getting any sleep. You're probably not eating very much either. Like you're, you're basically spelling the signs for red syndrome at this point. So other than that, it's the same. <laughs> Yeah, just, you know, nothing's changed except everything just changed yeah, completely overnight. Exactly. And then social media is like, yeah, you're cleared at six weeks. See ya. Um, and you're supposed to be back in your pre-pregnancy genes running, you know, your first 10K, you know, by eight weeks. So um, there's a little <laughs> bit of Im uh, imbalance between what the expectations are um, and what we're taught they are. And that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation because we need to start having it to educate women that, hey, this stuff is coming, please pay attention, um, but not scare the crap out of people. <laughs> and we also said too, like, we can't keep it like- Well, let's start with the 
Yeah, I think we're on like a tiny bit of a delay here. But yeah, it, it can't be like Fight Club where we're like, all right, we're not going to tell you about it until you're in it and it's too late. <laughs> right? Like, oh, you just, oh, you signed the blank piece of paper and then we filled it in later and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, you, this, you didn't know you were signing up for this? Gosh, somebody yeah. should have told you. <laughs> That's how a lot of us felt, yes. <laughs> So let's let's talk a bit about, you know, the the pregnancy aspect, the preparing to be postpartum aspect, because, you know, I think after after the baby's already here, you know, you're in postpartum land and a lot of women want to know, well, gee, was there anything I could have done or I can do next time Mm -hmm. when I'm pregnant, even before I get pregnant, that can help me, you know, strengthen my pelvic floor, prevent maybe the worst of these issues becoming a problem. I I think the first bit is to realize that the second you decided to conceive, you kind of lost control. And that's like parenting 101. Um, There's some things that you can anticipate and there's some things that you can't. Um, And my first pregnancy, I was going to be the fittest person. I was going to run through my entire pregnancy. I was going to run into the delivery room. All, you know, the data says that the more active you are, the, the better off, you know, my baby's going to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think at about 19 weeks it was, and that was pushing it. Like I would run like 200 yards and stop and have like excruciating bladder pain, even though I just emptied my bladder or symphysis pubis pain and that sort of thing. Like there's some things that you can see coming. Like if you've had issues like that before, you're more likely to have them in pregnancy. So if you've had SI issues, if you've had symphysis pubis pain, if you had leakage going into pregnancy, And I think that's another thing to acknowledge as well is especially some of our younger athletes are having leakage in sport and not talking about it. And these are our women that, you know, maybe they're, you know, being forced to perform at higher levels so that, you know, it's so much that it changes their menses or all of these sorts of things will come up and rear their head again. So same thing, if you have back pain prior to pregnancy, you're more likely to have it during and after. Um, so those sorts of things I think are a little bit easier to see coming, um, certain things, I think genetic factors, tissue integrity, um, like also muscle overactivity, um, that can change a little bit too. So one of the questions I always ask women, um, is like, what sports did you do growing up? And so, you know, interestingly enough, you can have women that are adults, runners, but they danced ballet for 18 years and were taught this gripping strategy in all their muscles and to pull everything in um, and consciously hold it. And those strategies might lead to more difficulty, um, you know, relaxing the pelvic floor for labor and delivery. It might, you can have overactivity that plays into stress urinary incontinence. It's, It's not just that the pelvic floor is weak and needs to get stronger. It's that we need to be able to contract and relax our muscles. The pelvic floor has to relax to be able to accommodate that delivery as well. So it's, I I think we're taught it has to be all this one thing and really it's a symbiotic. It kind of has to be this, this sweet balance between being able to contract and relax fully depending on what the task is at the time. Um, And, and, and again, I think kind of the more you understand about your body and what you're walking in with, um, and knowing where you can put effort in and get change and know also where, you know, I'm able to put effort in, but it might not be up to me. I think that's one of the most important things kind of going into pregnancy, um, especially when people have things planned out. Like I laminated my birth plan. I wouldn't recommend that. 
my, my son did not read it. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really important point to make um, because I know, and, and you're, well, people say, yes, you know, have a fit pregnancy or the plan to, you know, run up until the day you deliver or whatever it is. Oh, I'm just going to bounce back, which I want to talk about how I hate that phrase um, yeah. after pregnancy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, I know, um, you know, Olympic trials qualifiers who had to stop running very early on, like the ability yeah. to run through your pregnancy is not some sort of moral qualification. Like it doesn't yes. make you more or less of a runner, a good or a bad, you know, mother, if you cannot run, that's just how exactly. your body behaves sometimes. And that's like, yeah. that's just how it is. And that's okay. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, you know, I really appreciate, I feel like there's more, um, women in sport now that are being more open about, you know, trying to work out during pregnancy, trying to return postpartum and being vocal about the challenges of it. Because for so long, we were just trying to get a seat at the table and just trying to, you know, if you told anybody you were pregnant, they were going to fire you if that was your job, you know? Um, so great. We've got a seat at the table. Now we need to actually be realistic about what's going on so that we're not setting up all the women that are coming behind us to meet these unattainable, unrealistic expectations. Um, and so that's where, you know, I, I, I'm thinking like Alyssa Montano for one, like she's been super open about her, um, abdominal surgery and her recovery and that sort of thing. Just there, we have to be open about these are the things that happen to our body. We can still be strong. We can still do the things that we want to do, but it's not as rosy and you're not any less if, if this is what you've had to go through, because there's, there's so few people, there's such a small percentage that get through all of this and don't have something to, to kind of take as a souvenir. <laughs> yeah. I, it, you know, giving birth is even, even easy, short labors are a traumatic process. Like that's just, there's really no getting away around that. And I think that, right. you know, in the, you know, the expectation that your body is just going to somehow magically recover. And like you said, you're going to be back in your pre-baby genes at three weeks and back, you know, on the track at six weeks is like, I mean, that sounds a little crazy when you say it out loud. Yeah. And if you compare it to any other injury, you wouldn't, you know, have surgery and expect somebody to be right out there doing you know, the exact same thing. So, and again, you know, in the context of all this, you're still trying to figure out how to be this person. And I think that's one of the biggest changes, you know, you only knew this other body, you only knew this other person. Now you have this whole other role, this whole other body. And it's a really confusing time, especially if you don't have voices that you can connect with. If you only hear people being like, no, you have to be here. You, you should be here. Why aren't you, you know, better by now? Or what, what's going on with you? Like, that's really isolating. And already when our moms are at risk for postpartum depression, especially, you know, in COVID, we're already so isolated anyway. Um, it really is a very, it can be a transformative time in a good way, but also in a very negative way, depending on kind of, you know, what support and what expectations are there. So back to the, the pregnancy. Um, and like, I think, you know, when you said before that it used to be the recommendation that, you know, oh, you're pregnant now, like just get sit on the couch. Like, don't, you know, don't raise your heart rate. Don't, don't even think about being yeah. active at all. Protect the baby. That's actually not the best way. If you are able to be active during pregnancy, that is the recommendation, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the, the rule of thumb generally that I, I kind of advise to moms is, I wouldn't take pregnancy as a time to start something new. So like if you're not a runner, 
I wouldn't necessarily take this time to start now. Or, you know, if you're not a CrossFitter, don't necessarily start now. So um, taking things that you're comfortable doing. um, And some people feel the need to keep that intensity up. And the first trimester, they feel great. And then they start to, you know, get more fatigued or more aches and pains and things like that. And so they need to, to dial it back a little bit. Um, there's such a variation on what feels good to people and what doesn't. And so I know some people that they do great and they're able to run through the entire pregnancy, no worries, um, and no issues on the other side and other bodies that are just like, eh, no, this isn't going to work. And and so you kind of have to see what shows up. And so that's where having the discussion about, um, you know, what pelvic girdle pain is. And what's so hard is if you go to an OB, the OB is like, oh, well, that's just normal. There's nothing you can do. And you and I both know there's very much a lot of things that you can do for pelvic girdle pain to make a mother comfortable, um, teacher strategies to, to move with less pain, especially if it's early on in their pregnancy. Um, but then also give them permission that if they need to modify or scale back, that's totally fine to do too. So, um, you know, scale back if you need to know what pelvic girdle pain is, know if you have an onset of pelvic pressure or heaviness or leakage or things like that. Um, those might be indicators that we might need to, to make some modifications. And I think moms are taught that in the context of more kind of vitals. Like if you have shortness of breath or if your heart rate is this, or, you know, you have dizziness or something, I think those things were taught. Um, or if you have, you know, an increased discharge or bleeding, we're taught those things, but not so much these other little pieces that are very manageable. So I think the more that women know, like, hey, these things can happen, but you can also, you don't necessarily have to suck it up. Um, I'm not saying it's going to go completely away, but we don't necessarily have to be in excruciating pain um, throughout an entire pregnancy. So so if somebody were to come to you during their pregnancy for something like pelvic girdle pain mm-hmm. or something, you know, whatever it is that they would be discussing, um, what yep. would be something that you would work on with them? How would you address that? Yeah. So usually um, it, it's funny because orthopedic um, PTs, they don't like to touch pregnant women because they're like, I'm going to put them into labor. You're not. Trust me, you're not. <laughs> um <laughs> And so usually it's symphysis pubis dysfunction or it's um, some sort of tailbone pain or it's SI. And usually by adding some breath strategies so that they're not holding their breath and bracing to do transitional movement or, you know, if how you would, you know, treat anybody with symphysis pubis, you know, watch your asymmetries first, kind of work symmetrical motion. It's, it's kind of the same thing with the exception of the fact that you have this changing center of mass. And so their gait or how they move is may literally be changing week by week. So I, I compare it to kind of walking up a sand hill. Like you take three steps forward and you might slide two back, you might slide four back. <laughs> like it just, it's, you know that there's going to be an endpoint. That's the good news. But you're kind of managing as opposed to trying to make things necessarily get all better. Um, so, you know, the biggest things that moms have trouble with um, would be getting in and out of bed, getting in and out of the car, um, standing up from a low couch or things like that. Um, lots of them, they'll start waddling and to go faster, they, they waddle and that widens their base of support that increases, um, their single leg stance time, which if you have symphysis pubis issues or you have SI, that's actually going to make it worse. So shorter, smaller steps, not waddling is actually a little bit better. So just simple things like that, you know, even the things that we know, um, from a back pain perspective, 
you know, pillow between the knees or the feet. So there's not asymmetrical forces on different areas. Um, and then there's certain things like your hips are going to be sore because your pelvis is opening up. Um, some of those things, you know, we might not be able to avoid that. So maybe we need to look at where you're sleeping. Maybe that lazy boy that you hate of your husband's, maybe that's where you sleep the last couple of weeks before the baby's born, as opposed to a flat bed or something along those lines. So a lot of it is, okay, let's kind of work it with what we have, but it also gives us insight into what things that we're going to want to get onto sooner than later postpartum. And I'll have that conversation with them during pregnancy to say, hey, you know what, let's get together two to four weeks after your due date. Let's make sure that um, as we're working together, um, we're looking ahead, you know, you know, the signs and symptoms of things not going well, we'll screen things right off the bat when you get back um, after the delivery and we'll get started on finding your abs again, finding pelvic floor, make sure that, that you're all set to gradually start to build that foundation back. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a great opportunity to prepare them for what's to come without scaring them. And that way they feel some degree of control. And especially if it's their first delivery in, in sometimes what can feel like a very uncontrolled situation. Let's talk a bit about, is it diastasis recti? So am I pronouncing that yeah. correctly? <laughs> Yep, diastasis recti. I know I have trouble with SMTs. <laughs> diastasis recti. And that is a, um, it's fairly common from what I understand, but it's a separation of the abdominal muscles. And yep. I specifically, uh, my dear friend, Ashley, hi, Ashley, this episode's for you. Um, <laughs> my dear friend, Ashley asked specifically, uh, was there anything that I could have done to have prevented diastasis yeah. recti during my pregnancy? Okay. So Every single woman has diastasis. You can say a diastasis, diastasis, you can call it whatever you want. Every single woman has abdominal separation during pregnancy because if you think about it, you've got your, your rectus abs and the linea alba in between. They got to stretch out to accommodate that growing baby. Um, and so I think that's the first thing I always start with with women is that everyone has it. The only reason we're discussing it is because you don't look like what things look like postpartum, which might be a completely different issue than, than the abdominal separation. Um, but there's the, the research has gone through, um, it's getting better. There was, everybody was hyper-focused on the gap for a really long time. And basically that separation in between um, the rectus muscles. And so, you know, we used to do crazy things like, put a TheraBand around your waist and pull it together and you'll just train the, the rectus muscles closer together and then they'll learn what to do. No, that doesn't work. Um, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> and so there was, there, there was kind of two different camps in primary camps for a while in the research world looking at the gap. And there was one group that was like anti-gap and the other group that was like, eh. And then what both of them came to a conclusion on was that, because um, there was this question of what to do with the transverses, do we engage the transverses, do we not? And then they both came to the conclusion that actually engaging transverses opens the gap slightly. So then you've got like the anti-gap people that are like, ooh, don't contract the transverses. Well, and you and I are like, well, that's kind of not possible. Um, and then the other gap is like, all right, well, or the other group is like, well, maybe it's not all about this gap. And so what they looked into was actually what's, what why would that be important? Why would you want the transversus to open the gap slightly? And what it actually does is it tensions that linea alba. And so depending on 
um, your collagen. And these are the things that you cannot, you know, you can blame your parents for this. If you have collagen that's not elastic enough to kind of snap back, so to speak, um, or recoil back, you can tension that linear album or you can contract that, that TA till the cows come home. And it may be so kind of wrinkled and, and, and kind of spread out a little bit. You can't generate tension across. And that's where you'll see like that coning doming, that sort of thing. But you also have people that just don't know how to engage transversus and don't know how to tension it. And so usually the assessment, we'll, we'll look at the, the gap, but we'll also look at the depth because with, you know, a simple breast strategy, you can engage TA, you can tension that linea alba, and now all of a sudden you've got, you know, good control over pressure there. And now it doesn't look so weird when you do your planks or your, your toes to bar or things like that. So um, the primary reason I think people talk about it is because of the aesthetics. And I, I have a love-hate relation with it, relationship with it because um, it's good because it becomes a gateway to have conversations with people about other things. Like they'll come for diastasis and, the, and then I'll ask them about leakage and like, oh, I have that when I laugh. I'm like, wait, what? So it allows us to talk about other things. Um, but I also hate it because, and, and I kind of went through this myself, like as PTs, we're, we're taught to be very careful and only do these things. Don't do crunches, don't do planks, don't do these other things. And the fact of the matter is the more we baby something, um, it's, it's, it's not going to get stronger. And that's kind of what I went through is, is, you know, we were teaching people to be very delicate and careful with it and don't do this. Well, you're not going to feel strong because you're not doing anything with it. And so to kind of myth bust some of these things where like actually planks are fine. Use a good breast strategy. Um, sit-ups are fine. Same deal. Like uh, a friend of mine, Lisa Ryan, um, she had a significant uh, diastasis. She ended up having surgery on it. One of the most strong women I know, even walking into surgery. So um, I, I, I think it's one of those things that we tend to pay attention to things that scare us and be like, oh my gosh, I have this. Oh, what, what should I do? And unfortunately, a lot of people have businesses now that prey upon women um, with a fear tactic. And really what we should be doing is being open about what we know and what we don't know. And it's not something you fix because you were never broken in the first place, if that makes sense. So I love that. Yes. No, it, 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 I think that's the perfect way to to end that. You can't fix it because you can't fix something if it wasn't broken. It was just exactly. different. different. Different is not broken. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, no, I mean, when you're a mom in a new body, God, you wonder what the hell happens. <laughs> you're like, come on. <laughs> so let's talk about that postpartum. Now the baby's here. The home hormones are nuts. Sleep yep. is, you know, nowhere to be seen. The diet is crazy and consistent. Um, what, there are some women I'm sure who are wondering, my God, when can I put my sneakers back on? And then yeah. there are some others who are thinking the last thing I'm thinking about is when I can go for a run. So like, let's talk, we talked about timelines before. Let's talk about how there is no one timeline to do any of this stuff after you give birth. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, 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 I think it was the UK guidelines that came out in 2019. That was the first kind of anything that we had as far as when it's okay to go back or at least to, to, to screen out, to go back postpartum. And I think that the primary components in that 
you know, and, and, and to be honest, it was taking what we know from return to run after injury literature, what little we have in postpartum and what we know about kind of um, female athletes and mashing it up and being like, all right, we got to start somewhere. And then now that we have something to work from, we're like, all right, well, now let's see if there's any anything that, that you know, we can get more specific on. Um, you know, I, th- I think we would all agree that, you know, six weeks, you're barely just coming out of the dark anyway. And so in what we know about soft tissue healing, you know, at six weeks, you're only about 75% anyway. So it stands to reason to wait a little bit, whether you've had vaginal or C-section. Um, and then that point, screening out your balance, screening out your strength, screening out um, impact, those sorts of things to see what shows up um, and then slowly building back some strength. And I, I think this is where it gets tricky because um, very much like what you said, you have women that they need this for their mental health and it's super important. And then there's women that are like, no, I'm good for now. I, c- I can wait and, and I want to wait for a little bit. Um, but I think some of the concepts on return to run after injury hold true, like walk before you run walking is when you have a baby is one of the greatest things to do to start one, because you have two options. Well, I lie three. Um, one is if you're lucky enough to go out by yourself, chances are you're not, um, two, you can walk pushing a stroller easy three, you can walk with a baby in a carrier, which is a little bit more pressure. Um, but you've got these options and the beautiful thing about your baby is your baby's progressive resistance. So the, as the baby grows more load, um, but you've got different ways to play around with, with just that rock walking progression, you know, starting on incline or, or things like that. And so walking is such a huge component. And, and I think for mental health too, and we've finally, we've got some good weather now. Um, it's, it's good for everybody to get out of the house, especially if you didn't sleep that night or, you know, you're having uh, nursing issues or, or anything like that. So those sorts of things I think are very similar. Um, but you know, I've, I've had women where they'll come perfectly clean on a return to run screen at eight weeks and they know, you know, if you have pressure, if you have leakage, if you have pain, we stop, we dive into this more, we walk through their walk run run progression as they go back. It's not like they're going to start at a 5k. We're very methodical clients like that. I have no problem them going earlier than later because for them, they need this for management. And and we talk about that. Um, And then there's other women that if you're having pressure, pain, leakage, just walking around, I'm 99.44% sure that that's going to happen with running. So starting with running may not serve us. We, And that's where kind of playing the long game and waiting and building that foundation is important. And I'm, I'm that kind of mom that if, if my kid does something, I'm going to think he's going to do it till he's 16, you know, <laughs> like, like, oh my gosh, I can't do this the rest of my life. And I think that's the thing too, you know, the, the, the days are long, the nights are long, the years are short. Um, what's happening right now will pay off later and later, you know, it's not as as far away as you think. So um, just, I think explaining to women what the long game is, but also listening to them and figuring out what they need and not necessarily shutting it down. Like if I have a woman that she starts to leak in a mile, but a mile will give her a little bit of mental health break. I'm going to be okay with that. You know what I mean? Um, So how, how can we, 
give them what they need, but actually kind of help support the other stuff that, that we would like to focus on. And the individualized, I mean, that's, you know, part of what I do is I, I try to give advice. And of course you as an expert, this is what you do this, you know, all day. It's like, you know, yeah, we can, there are general guidelines, but it genuinely de- person, depends on the person. You know, there's, yeah. there are rules that are one size fits many, but there's always yeah. going to be a follow-up question or questions or many, many, many questions because it totally depends on the individual person and what their specific situation is. And I think even for women from pregnancy to pregnancy, they could have one pregnancy and, you know, and then the second or the third one, and they're completely different experiences and expecting them to be the same can kind of, you know, be difficult sometimes. Yeah. And I I think the first one is probably the hardest just because you don't know what's going on. I think um, the second, if you've had if things are worse and and I think moms have a little bit better head on their shoulders and they're a little bit more ready to roll with it and maybe they won't laminate their birth plan. But um, if things are harder the second time around, that's always a challenge. And and again, kind of taking the time to unpack that with them and, and helping them understand, even like return to run after the second, like it took me a lot longer to get back after my second. Cause you've got two kids at home, you know? Um, and it, it's, some people are really, and, and again, support systems too. And COVID has been really tough. A lot of women that we're going to have their families come and stay with them and help, or we're going to get childcare earlier. Those things haven't been as easy to access as they would have liked. And so there's been a huge toll on moms on how they expected to get back to something postpartum um, just because they haven't felt safe. Um, and so we've had to kind of navigate that in some creative ways and for women not feeling like they had the support that they thought they were going to have is really hard. Um, so, and you have a screening tool that you developed the, it sounds like it's the return to run screening tool. Uh, what, and I think you mentioned the six week mark, like when do you break that out? Mm -hmm. What does that look like if someone were to come to you and you know, you, and it's there that they're, they're, you know, six week mark and you do the screening, what would that entail? Yeah. So, so full, full, uh, full credit to the people that, that basically came up with the content for it. I merely put it in a PDF mashup form. Um, so it's based on the 2019 UK guidelines. Um, Emma Brock, Brockman or Brockwell, um, uh, Grain Donnelly, um, so many people worked on that. Um, also, uh, Chris Johnson, um, who's Zarin PT, um, he's got some guidelines and stuff that are out that are more return to run after general injury. Uh, he's, he's not postpartum specific. Um, there was a couple other people that had little different versions of things that they looked at. And so the primary categories that I've been pulling have been balance, um, course, generally core and hip strength, um, and then impact. So, I mean, one of the very first screens, um, that I saw years ago, I think it was from like a CSM conference in New Orleans or something was, um, they did like a hop test or something like that. And so a woman who's going to have pressure or leakage, if you ask them to jump up and down for 30 seconds, if they only can get 10 jumps in, chances are, if they're running, they're going to have a problem. So something as simple as that, and we didn't we didn't have any of this, and so that's where I basically just took a mashup of all these other kind of sources and said, all right, is this a good tool to start with? And 
as far as when to start with, again, it depends. Um, I may have somebody that um, they look good, like I said, at six weeks and we take it and we use it to say, all right, you're ready to run at this point. Or we use it and say, all right, between six weeks and 12 weeks, this is what I want you to work on. This is where your deficits are so that when we hit 12 weeks, we're ready to go. Um, so, you know, we used to say, all right, you know, six weeks, you're, you're totally fine, which we know is not true. Um, I, I think it's a good starting point to say, all right, you're, you've got your, your wits about you at this point, you're, you're, you're conscious, you're vertical. Let's see what's going on. If you're the 1% that you're cleared and you're good to go, please be aware of these other things and let's be very methodical about it. Or we use it to guide where you need to kind of build that foundation and that support um, so that when you hit that 12 weeks, you can start to go and not necessarily have issues. Um, so I, as far as that goes, and I might have clients too, that we might get to 12 weeks, they take it, totally look good. And then they get out there and they're having issues running around a corner or running out down a hill or something like that. Just because you pass everything on the screen doesn't mean everything's good to go. That just means those things generally we think we're okay. And so that's where I've seen, um, I think it was Grain Donnelly. She, she's put out some different, um, and, and again, we're all just trialing and erroring this stuff and it's bastardizing kind of things that we're pulling and think about how much stuff we learned about, you know, return to run after injury in general. Like we're kind of just trying to take things and, and play with them and see what information it gives us. Um, but anything that just hyper-focuses us on, um, you know, where to go next. Um, if you're having leakage when you run around the corner, let me look at what you're doing. Maybe we need to start to do diagonals or, you know, any sort of like multi-directional sorts of things. Um, it's taking what we see and breaking it down to those components. Um, and so the basic screen is just, you know, getting you start. Do we generally have everything together so that it looks like you're good to go? Um, so it's, it's not a, you know, you have the, the blessing and everything is hundred percent fine. It's okay. We've got a good baseline to start and chances are we're okay. Let's go back to that, the period in between, between birth and when they might, you know, somebody might be ready for the return to run screening. Yeah. And I kind of want to connect this to what I said before about how much I hate the phrase bounce back <laughs> because that implies some sort of like a passive, like you either have it or you don't. And like, if you don't, you're screwed. Um, and connect that to what you said about if you, you need to work it to make it stronger. So yeah. like if, you know, bouncing back's not really a thing. No. It just, you know, your return is your return and that it's, it's okay. But also there are things that we can do in our own ways to become stronger. And those are active things, not things that we just sit around and wait for them to get stronger. You have to work it to make it stronger. Exactly. Um, and that's where, you know, like I said, one of the first things and one of the easiest things to do is get out the door and walk. Um, and even just caring for your baby, your, like I said, your baby's progressive resistance, progressive load, um, that's a great place to start. Um, you know, finding your abdominals, no matter what kind of delivery you had, reconnecting with your body, reconnecting with balance, all of those things are, are great places to start um, while you're having soft tissue healing. Um, and, and again, like is, is those first six weeks, is that the time to start loading things up? No, it's not. <laughs> is it the time to be like, all right, I'm going to do power walking every night? No, let's, you know, can we just 
back it down a little bit. And, you know, I know it sounds cheesy to be like, you need to do what your body needs, What your body needs to do first is to heal. And if you delay that, um, that's actually going to put you further off down the line. In six weeks, it goes by so fast. Again, the days are, they feel like forever and the nights feel longer, but it goes by really quick. Um, and so the first couple of weeks, you're just trying to figure out what to do with this human anyway. And really six weeks is about when you're coming out of the dark. So if those first six weeks, if you have a good regular walking program, you're getting some sleep, you're getting good nutrition, everybody's pooping on both sides, you've got your, your nursing or your, your bottle feeding in check, um, you know, even just finding your abs, finding breath again, those are great places to start. I know that drives people crazy that are like ready to go high intensity and and again, it's it's finding where can we get that endorphin rush for them in in a way that is um, I don't want to use safe because that implies it's dangerous, but like in a way that's um, more purposeful and um, purposeful towards building that foundation back up. So rather than bounce back, it really needs to be build up. Um, I don't like back because it implies I'm going where I came from. I don't anticipate I I, I will go there again. <laughs> It's not, it's just a fact. I, I'm not in the same body. Even if I didn't have kids, I'm not in the same body I was in 20 years ago. Um, so I think that idea that you're exactly who you are in mind and body afterwards, I wouldn't want that. I know some people that's very much a thing and there's a lot of unpacking that needs to kind of come with that too. So it's, it's more complicated than it looks on the surface. <laughs> I love that, that you can't go back. I mean, in with, with or without, you know, pregnancy, like, you know, time goes forward, like you can mm -hmm. never go back. And, um, I, I, I do tend to get the sense that for women who are thinking about getting pregnant or who are pregnant or who recently given birth is that they're afraid they're never going to be as strong athletically as mm -hmm. after baby as they were before. Right. Um, but I feel like there are a lot of female athletes, um, you know, in our communities yep. and also on the world stage that are showing us that you can be a hell of a lot faster with yeah. kids at home than you were before. Well, I mean, I think the beautiful thing about being a mom and especially these professionals, um, they don't have time for the the crap in between. Like they got work to do because somebody needs them at home. And so there's no fluff. <laughs> And I think also by this point too, I mean, a lot of these women are in their late early, late thirties, early forties, like they know their bodies well. And I feel like performance science has come so far too, that like you can really dial in, you know, how you can dial in as a master, I think is far different from how you dial in as a 20 something and you still don't know where, where your grit comes from. And so, you know, I, I, I dare see even outside the pro circuit, like some women that, that I've worked out with before um, in my gym, you know, I, I'm 45 this year. They're, you know, in their 50s, strong as hell. And they're in the best shape that they've ever been. And I think the motivation is a little bit different, too. I think when you're you want to be strong and play with your kids and, you know, run with them when they want to run or play ball or play lacrosse or, you know, whatever that is. And you have a purpose to do that, to fulfill this vision of what you want to be for them. Um, and know that your body has the capacity to do that. Like 
you know, COVID aside, we'll put COVID aside on this one. Like um, when I started adding heavy lifting to my regimen, in addition to running, I'd never felt as strong in my life. Um, and, you know, with the, the, the battle scars that I have, that, that kind of says a lot. So um, there's something that comes with the maturity and the focus and the power that you have at that point. And these women are showing that it translates into performance um, and they have the ability to do that. So I, I know that there's a fear because you don't know what it's going to be like and you see things that you, you don't want to be. Um, and it's scary, uh, especially, again, if you don't have control over all of it. And what I would say is there's far more examples of strong women, you know, having kids and, and continuing to perform despite the adversity than there ever has been before. So if there's anybody listening who doesn't have kids, has not gotten pregnant, is not even thinking about conceiving, but wants to start preparing now <laughs> to make their <laughs> pelvic floor as healthy as possible for the future, what can they do? Uh, I would say the first thing is don't assume that Kegels are the answer. Um, I think we were fed that for a really long time and Dr. Kegel needs to go back and, and you know wherever that came from. Um, we thought for the longest time that if you were having issues, um, or going into pregnancy or whatever, that the key is to have these strong muscles. And the fact of the matter is just like any other muscle, we need to have the ability to turn it on and the ability to turn it off. And so, you know, if you have things like painful sex or urgency frequency, or, you know, uh, uh, any sort of bladder pain or things like that, any hip issues, back issues, you may have some predispositions towards overactive pelvic floor where it's on more than it's off. Um, and so, you know, postpartum is really the first time that we have this permission to kind of talk about the pelvic floor, but so many of my clients and so many of the women postpartum that have issues, it was the body that they walked into pregnancy with. They just weren't symptomatic at that point. Um, and the ones that were symptomatic, at least we had a heads up that that was coming. So um, I think just understand your pelvic floor a little bit more. Um, do you have the ability to squeeze? Do you have the ability to relax? Do you have any issues going on that maybe you're just not paying attention to? I can't tell you how many women I talk to like, oh, I just have a weak bladder. I've always had that. I go to the bathroom all the time. My friends make fun of me. Like, yeah, that's actually a thing. <laughs> um, and to kind of stay on top of that and we're you know, we, we don't give it much credence before babies. And then all of a sudden we're hyper-focused on it afterwards. So I think the more you can kind of understand what things are, are looking like, and I, I have women that will come in, you know, either pre-pregnancy or in the first trimester and be like, Hey, I just want to get a check and see how things are now and see if there's anything I need to kind of plan ahead or um, be aware of. And, you know, sometimes we don't find anything, but it's still just a, an open place to have that conversation which is far more than what we were doing, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, it's just, you shouldn't have to kind of hide in a corner and shame and not know who to talk to. Like, let's start these conversations, you know, much earlier. Like let's, let's teach our kids, you know, our, our little girls, what their body parts, what the real names are. Let's teach them, you know, what's safe, what, how to take care of themselves um, how to be empowered about their bodies so that we get to this point, um, they're even more educated. Again, I, I, I want to educate. I don't want to scare. And I think there's plenty of ways to do that. 
um, and empower girls and women to know what's coming and be prepared and, and understand their own bodies and what they're going through. I think there's a real value in being able in that kind of having that self-awareness, but also the vocabulary to describe yes. the thing that's happening in your body and saying, yep. you know, cause I, I get questions that it's like my knee hurts and it's like, well, you have to be more specific than that, you know, but, right, but exactly, to be able yeah. to identify like, oh, I have, you know, pain in my lower abdomen where it's like, well, that could genuinely be one of a hundred things. Right. Let's be more specific. And so being able to differentiate between, you know, what is it in the front or is it back or the side? Is it, kind yeah. of, you know, what, like being able to tune into ourselves, it just, it's, it makes us better at identifying and caring for the bodies that we live in. Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, again, like our, our perineum, you don't really look there, you know? And so, you know, postpartum is sometimes the first time that women ever really look at themselves. And so my, my daughter who's seven now that that's something that I've been hyper-focused on is that she's comfortable not only naming her parts, but, um, you know, comfortable with what it looks like, who has permission to touch there, how does she communicate, you know, when things are going wrong, you know, just those sorts of things so that, you know, the first time you experience something there and the first time you look isn't postpartum when you've just gone through like a massive vaginal delivery. Um, but it, it does, it makes a difference. I mean, it, it was funny, my daughter, she said something to my husband about how her urethra hurt and, um, what, she, she kills me. She thinks it's not fair that boys don't have to sit down to pee and it's not fair that they don't have to wipe because they get to just go back and play, which I get it. Like, <laughs> but I was like, honey, she knows the difference between her urethra and, you know, her labia and her vulva. And she knows these things. And I trust her that when she tells me it's there, then, okay, we're going to start to look UTI sorts of things as opposed to something else. Um, and I think that's important for, we know how to do that in all of our other parts of our body. Why don't we do it here? Um, and that's boys and girls. That's not, that's not just girls. That's, that's all kids um, to kind of just yeah. and get more ownership over their body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, boys have their own parts. They have a urethra too. And I mean, yeah, I'm mean, even thinking back you know, knowing the difference between a yeast infection and a UTI. Like that's a really important distinction yes. to be able to have. Don't treat them very differently. <laughs> very differently. And, and I mean, even understanding, you know, it, that sex should not be painful and having those conversations and you're like, all right, well, how do I connect that to running? Well, if you have painful sex and you also have tight hips and you also have weak hips, then guess what? You probably have an overactive pelvic floor. So, you know, it's tying those things together that they are relevant. And maybe that person that has all of those things might actually be a teen runner, a distance runner, high level, and maybe, maybe their period has stopped because they're training too hard. And maybe they have a little bit of stress incontinence. And like, you start to go down that rabbit hole a little bit. And, you know, it, it, the more we can understand about things that are signs that we need to pay attention to it more, not that it's bad, but, you know, pain with something is just an indicator. We need to look at this a little bit more. Not that something's wrong and, and, and horrible and, and something's wrong with you, but that we just need to pay attention to this and dive into that a little bit more. Running is the great revealer. If something doesn't feel right, don't ignore it. Do something about it. <laughs> but they do. <laughs> We've all done it. They do ignore it. They ignore, they, people ignore the, the crazy 
craziest things. And it's like, oh, you've been running on a stress fracture for how many weeks? Oh my goodness. (laughs) It just shows you how resilient we are. (laughs) That grit we're supposed to cultivate, right? Yeah, Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Well, Carrie, this has been an absolute pleasure. I learned an incredible amount today and I thought that I'd done my research and this has just been (laughs) such a fascinating conversation. So if people want to find you, follow you, get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah. So I, I try and make it super easy. I tend to hang out on Instagram the most and it's just uh, Carrie, at Carrie Pagliano. Um, my website's the same, uh, carriepagliano.com. And that's where I, I tend to be the most. And, you know, depending on, you know, how you're listening to this, if you're a professional, like if you're a coach or a trainer or you're in orthopedics and you're like, ah, I have clients who are women and they had babies at one point in time. Guess what? They're always postpartum once they've been postpartum. So um, I have resources, um, like I say, like you mentioned, kind of the return to run screen. Um, that's a great thing for professionals to use and even DIY it yourself just to see where you stand on that. And all of those you can find at course backslash carriepagliano.com. Great. And I'll make sure all everything is linked in the show notes. You can find Carrie on Instagram and I'll link her website and a direct link to her return to run screening tool. So awesome. with that, I want to thank you again so much. I hope that maybe we can do a, a second part of this conversation down the road someday. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at Running Explained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. Until next time, happy running! This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.